The Voice America Business Channel is brought to you by Intercall, the worldwide conferencing leader. Check out easy and reliable conferencing solutions at www.intercall.com forward slash radio. My guest today, Jeddah Mali, as a child had many unusual experiences that taught her how the intention of thought governs differing energy states, which in turn affect the behavior of matter. These experiences came about unbidden, but even at the age of six, she had an innate understanding of their nature. In the same way that a bird knows how to fly without ever having done it before, she knew at an early age that she had an ability to understand and interact with the intangible. She also knew that most people were not aware of this potential within themselves, and as a result, it lay largely undiscovered. However, it's always accessible for those who choose to look for it. Her own questioning was answered in the form of advanced spiritual masters who appeared to her for teachings and guidance. They've been her constant companions ever since. And throughout her life, she's experienced a series of awakenings, culminating now in a moment-to-moment awareness of the source of all existence. Since then, she's been mentoring individual clients and teaching small and large groups through high-level coaching. She's set up and run courses for people to learn about and experience human energy field exploration. She's taken every opportunity to become adept in her field. The extent to which she's achieved is now available to others. Jedda Mali. Welcome today to In Discussion and my guest, Jedda Mali. Jedda, welcome to you. Thank you. It's so very nice of you to appear on In Discussion. And thank you so very much to those behind you who have made this happen. An amazing life that you have taken, an amazing journey. Looking at your biography and your website in some ways reminds me of my childhood, growing up for the first 20 years of my life running around Stonehenge. And with that in mind, what I'd like to do whenever I have a first program with a guest is for the listeners go back to your childhood. Could we start there? If you would kindly give me an overview of your childhood, and I realize that it was a very special time for you. Yes, well, special on an internal sense, uh, and in many ways unremarkable externally. So I I was born into a very ordinary, average, middle-class family in the south of England. And I lived the life that everybody else around me was living externally. So I went to school, I had a sister, I grew up, I had friends, I played, I did all of the same things that everybody else did. But internally, I had a very different life and it didn't really seemed strange to me at the time. It's only now with an adult perspective looking back that I see that my inner life probably didn't resemble anything my friends were experiencing in so much as I was always very intuitive. I always had a deep sense of knowing. I always kept up an abiding conversation, that's probably the closest word, or relationship that's a better word, 
with the intangible so that I felt always that there was a guiding presence. I, I could feel that there was a benevolent, sentient guiding presence with me, through me, in me, around me all of the time. And yet, you know, there was never any never any volition to express that. You know, it it felt completely natural and normal to me. And it seems remarkable now when I look back and think, well, how come I never spoke about it? But it just never occurred to me to speak about it. Occasionally, there would be experiences that I knew were extraordinary, but again, there was um, no volition to speak about it. The times I did mention strange happenings, they were put down to possible brain damage. I got carted off to the doctors. Um, or the fact that I probably had a temperature and was hallucinating, this kind of thing. So they were never taken very seriously. Would you define this as floating seamlessly between this reality and a special world? Well, I don't know if I would define it as a special world. Uh, it felt to me as if it were the the natural world, uh, the true world, and that this world was somehow uh, the illusion. And I don't know if I would say floating seamlessly. I would like to think so. I mean, in truth, that's probably how it happens. But this being incarnate in this world and having to manage that exterior life did not come smoothly. Managing the interior life did. I had a natural ongoing relationship. I, I was never taught how to be intuitive. It's, it's always been there, that relationship, that ability. But to be able to interact with other people, to be able to understand other people, that did not come automatically. And I found I found that challenging, always found it challenging, and I always felt very cut off and very alone. So it didn't, it didn't furnish me with a contentment um, for being here on earth. There was a contentment for my internal life, but it didn't extend to being comfortable in my surroundings. And in fact, one could say it, it, my childhood wasn't particularly happy because of that. Was there, looking back in retrospect, a catalyst that took you into this position? Or is this all you remember about it? I don't think there was a catalyst, I mean, other than birth. <laughs> but no, I don't think there was a catalyst. It, it's just I brought a certain knowingness, a certain uh, frequency with me, and that was pervasive enough that I could feel it, uh, you know, as a child. If there were any catalysts in my life, I guess they came later when it helped me to bridge that inner knowingness with how to live in the world. In a way, unknowingly, and despite the fact that it wasn't terribly comfortable or happy childhood, it was necessarily a choice point that you made even though you were very young. It was, a, I imagine it was a choice point to come here and now from the perspective I have today, I see it was the perfect incarnation, the perfect childhood for me 
to learn about everything there was to learn about separation, the mechanics of separation and how it's possible to be a divine being and yet not experience oneself as that. So my childhood was absolutely perfect training for that understanding. This is therefore a sense of oneness at that stage or would you say that you were not aware of that divine position in the universe yet? I was aware, I had an inkling of it but not I was not aware of the full extent and I certainly wasn't conscious because consciousness emerges uh, in one's later childhood and obviously all the way through your adulthood too but as a young child you don't question anything you just accept and so there was no there was no flowering of consciousness there it was just natural and acceptance of the way things were and the consciousness of who I was came later. How did those close to you, Jeddah, react or respond to you? Were they aware of this position that you were in, or was it not apparent to your parents or to people close to you? That's a good question. I, I think probably the latter. I think it probably wasn't terribly apparent to them because it was something that... I was very, very quiet about it. It was just something that existed for me and I didn't really share. I didn't share it with anybody, not friends, not family. And the times that I did share unusual experiences, it, as I said, it was put down to some kind of medical condition or some aberration mentally. So I grew up in a very straight-laced, middle-class environment where, you know, spirituality was never discussed. Both my parents were atheists, and so there wasn't a, a broader context for life. It was, you know, it was the third-dimensional mechanics, Newtonian laws that were subscribed to. It's interesting looking at your message for mankind, and I read here moment-to-moment -moment conscious awareness, moment-to-moment -moment conscious intention, and then, of course, a thought and attendant feeling. And I'm assuming at that stage in your life you were certainly meeting the first of those, the conscious awareness, but not really understanding it to the extent of how intention can be utilized in every waking second of your life. Yes, absolutely right. Yes. What occurred later in your teens? I know that it was 1987, 20 years old, and you began this journey. What was the catalyst there to getting you to that point where clearly now you are beginning to utilize intention in where you're going? What was the decision around that? The, the friends I had at the time were different then. I, I, I guess I naturally gravitated towards people that were speaking a language that made sense to me. And so I had friends that were interested in uh, the pursuit of conscious development, meditation, spirituality. And one friend in particular um, was very interested. And so we set off on this odyssey to Asia you know, at a pretty young age and just reaching adulthood to go and study in 
monasteries and I was already a student of yoga by that time. So by the time I was 20, you know, that it, that, that was the catalyst, was the friends that I had and undertaking that journey. And from that point on, it exploded upon my inner awareness and my external life changed dramatically. It, it came to express and reflect my earlier inklings in a much more profound and overt way. What are the remarkable memories about that period where you studied with these amazing masters? I remember, you know, this was the first time that I had done concentrated periods of meditation and I remember just the sheer delight of now having a conscious, unfettered access to internal states, vast, expanded internal states. And almost as if I knew where I was, I knew that territory, I knew that feeling, I knew that ground, but I was rediscovering it for the first time in this incarnation. And the sheer bliss and delight of finding that I could operate in that medium so effortlessly realizing I'd had that ability all along and hadn't utilized it. That was amazing for me. You know, we, we would have, it was most of the time silent. We would sit sometimes, we were allowed to talk at certain times of the day and we would sit and relate our experiences. And I remember, you know, relaying my experiences to the senior nuns and monks and they looked at me and with the raised eyebrows and said, are you aware that these are very advanced states and practices that you're describing? Um, and I wasn't, of course, but it felt like home to me. And so it, that inner life opened up very, very quickly. I'm going to go off course here, as I often do, but it's only going to be a two-degree change, and then I'll head back to the center of the road. When you've reached that point, clearly... Prior to that, there was some sadness or unhappiness. You then move into this time in your life where you're feeling comfortable with those around you that are resonating in the same way. Does it then become even more prolific or pronounced of the conditioning of the world that you had left in your childhood? Could you see the remarkable difference between a 3D world and the world that you were heading into? Yes, very much so. And it's interesting that you ask me that because that's exactly what happened, that the, the, the differences became much starker. And again, you know, one automatically assumes that if you have a certain degree of consciousness or ability or or history internally that it's going to naturally translate externally through your personality and maybe for some people it does but for me it didn't and one of the reasons I've been told that it was such a choppy ride for me to show up as a human being even though I was a pretty advanced uh, spiritual being was that I haven't spent many incarnations on earth uh, and so I hadn't I hadn't got prior training if you like prior experience in having to being able to translate those energies into human behavior so this incarnation for me has felt like 
a big catch up in that regard and now I now I'm most definitely caught up but there was a period where my inner life exploded and of course because I could see that I wasn't able to sort of be in the world yet uh, fluidly and effortlessly, I, I tended to remain in that inner world and retreat to it. I mean, I spent 10 years pretty much in Asia, and you could call that a retreat from the world. And I was developing a lot of skill on an inner level, a lot of discipline, a lot of knowledge, a lot of experiences. But I wasn't necessarily furthering my ability to show up as a human being. Uh, and that came almost 10 years later in my 30s, uh, where I realized there was a discrepancy. And one couldn't call oneself whole until you'd really bridged that gap and brought all of that understanding and those frequencies right down into the physical and you're able to reside in an earthly state. Would you define that in another way? This is terribly simplistic, I know. But being in a place of duality where obviously in my work come across so many people who are looking towards their inner selves. And that is absolutely super and I understand the importance of that. But then to my mind the danger is in my life it's about balance and discernment and compassion but you can go too far in the opposite direction you can become so empowered or disturbed about finding your inner self that you lose the skill of still being able to communicate and participate in this reality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well what I, what I subsequently learned from that, from seeing that I wasn't yet effortlessly functioning in the world, I learned that my true inner being, the one that most people are seeking, was there present all the time. It wasn't something I had to seek. It wasn't something I had to chase. It wasn't, it wasn't a goal. It wasn't you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It wasn't the destination. It was something that I was already. And so the whole notion of seeking became ridiculous because I was already that. And so my learning was around, well, what prevents me from experiencing that on a moment-to-moment basis? What prevents me expressing that? And I could see it was the action of certain thoughts, and certain beliefs and certain assumptions which stand in in contradiction to that truth the way those thoughts enact themselves upon my being my being my true being will take up those thoughts and run with them and the effect that that has doesn't mean that my true being is absent or not available anymore it just simply means i'm not experiencing it anymore so when we talk about you know, people can go too far or become unbalanced. Every, everything we do in the name of seeking is part and parcel of the illusion. So it doesn't matter whether we go a little way or we go a long way into illusion, it's still illusion. And so that was the thing that really changed everything for me. That was when my inner life and my outer life started to align and match up. When I, when I learned that, that my true self is with me all the time and I simply can rest my focus in it 
it sounds almost too good and too simple to be true, but it is good and it is true. And it's only when we allow anything which is not that to act upon us and we believe in it that we create the impression of being less than, of being wrong, of missing, lacking, etc., etc., and therefore the experience of it. You have just answered my next question, that we spend so much time opposing things, opposing concepts, ideas, and it really does not serve us well. It only serves to accentuate the problem. It's all about being in a very special place where you are constantly... I would say universally in that oneness to the point where compassion, love is all and there are no negative effects that can resonate in your mind or more actually in your heart. Yes, that is so. However, you know, the, the way that we are designed, uh, the way existence is designed and of course by extension human beings, is that you know that energy that we are the the truth of our being because it doesn't ever go away it is it is a constant that's why it's called the eternal it, the the nature of that energy remains constant also so that it remains in a constant state of expansion light and harmony and therefore it can try on any guise it can try on any thought it can try on any belief and as it tries it on, its nature doesn't change, even if it tries on extreme contraction in the form of, you know, fear, doubt, hate. It can try those things on and produce that experience without changing its nature. And so when we try on extreme seeking or we exert ourselves in the name of trying to find ourselves, we may produce contracted states or if the mind is running rampant and producing a lot of resistance or counterthought again we'll experience uh, the the uh, appearance of a, a veil or an obstruction but that in itself is an education that in itself is feedback and so the the way that existence is designed and structured even when we make these strong experiments with contraction it's still giving us valuable feedback because the contracted experience it creates is the way that existence says are you sure you want to continue with this thought are you sure you want to continue does this thought feel like it's working for you and and so no matter what we do we're getting fantastic feedback you know the existence is constantly educating us now the fact that this is happening doesn't mean that we know this is happening and this is what my work is about is to bring people up to speed with the way existence functions the way it's designed once we understand that experientially we always know where we are we can always find ourselves you know if we even if we're in strong contracted states we can recognize that because we know how the design functions and then things become very simple, much easier to navigate and the whole loading and misery and struggle and conflict that many people live through, in, in most cases, uh, the majority of it just literally drops, drops away. You're 
heading towards the law of attraction, but I just wanted to raise one thought. Would you agree with me that it's very important to find a position where you are very intuitive, relying upon your intuition, whatever the circumstances that may come from that, being very safe in knowing your intuition, that it will guide you, and that the universe behind it will always, as you say, give you the feedback, either way, negatively or positively, but that intuition will serve you well if you are in the right place. Yes, I suppose I wouldn't call it intuition. I would, I would call it just that feedback, because uh, intuition gets people into a whole area that makes things unnecessarily complicated. So yes, but that reassurance and that trust in our very being to do that can't be garnered from any thoughts and it can't be garnered from uh, a mental concept. It can only arise, you know, the, the strong abiding trust in life and in our being can only arise through experiencing that. And so we guide people to the experience of their moment-to-moment -moment being and out of that, the expansion, light and harmony, they feel that the safety they feel is what engenders that ongoing trust. And from there, it becomes a natural step. You don't have to give yourself reasons to be in a state of trust. It's a natural step because you can feel, you can feel the state of trust providing that energetic safety. I spent a couple of hours yesterday, Jeddah, with my good friend, uh, Professor Bill Tiller. We were talking about this and also free will came up in this conversation. Of course, I think that the meaning of free will has been very warped over the years, particularly in religious circles. The conclusion out of our conversation that free will is a wonderful thing if used with measure. And that is part of this equation, is it not? Well, I don't know if that has to be qualified and used with measure. I mean, I know what you're meaning, but I think that's the behaviors that have to be discerning. I think that's probably what you're meaning. Uh, free will for us is that we are, we as beings are able, through the co-creative aspect of our being, able to try on any state we so choose. We're able to formulate any thought. So there's no thought that is denied to us. That is the free will aspect of our being. There's no uh, possibility within our imagination that is des uh, denied to us. So that our very being is in a permanent state of infinite potential. And we don't, the fact that we don't utilize that potential doesn't mean it's not there. Most people don't utilize it and then blame existence for not furnishing them with enough options. Mm. But, you know, the, we can. I mean, if, if the listeners right in this moment consider, they can think any thought they want right now. They can imagine anything they want. It, there's, no, there's no aspect of being that will come in and say, no, you can't go there. We're literally given permission. And that's the, that's the 
infinite creativity of our being. However, there are certain things we can we can imagine anything, we can think anything, but we can't make anything happen. And the things we can't make happen are we can't stop existence existing and we can't change the nature of existence and we can't stop it appearing in the present moment. So those aspects of being are what we call given or fixed or non-negotiable that existence exists as energy in the present moment and has a fixed nature which is expansion, light and harmony. And those areas when I say they're fixed and non-negotiable, that is not to limit them because what we can do with that uh, clay, that raw material, is infinite. But we've got to have a consistent baseline from which to start. And so that, that energy that we are is the clay. We can fashion anything we like from that clay, but we've got to have a starting point. The constancy and of that energy is what provides us with an infallible safety, an infallible place from which to stand, from which to experience everything. And that is the place that we return to. That is the place where my consciousness resides in the communion or direct union with that aspect of my being that is eternal and abiding, eternally and abidingly expansion, light and harmony. And so I can try on anything. I'm not, and I'm even allowed to try on anything that isn't good for me, but I can't change that nature. So that aspect is the full proofing in the mechanism, in the design. So that even though some of us do try on, many, many human beings try on states that aren't good for them or for other people or for the world and don't produce harmonious results, the existence stops short of actualizing that. You can only ever create the impression of it. You'll never, ever change its nature. So that's what gives existence the the freedom to provide such free will, knowing that, yeah, go ahead, play, experiment, try everything out, try on everything that there's possible to try on, because existence knows knows itself that it is uh, in an eternal state of expansion, light and harmony, can't be broken and can't be changed. This is reaching a point where you get to this place in your life where every action, every smile, the way you walk is now resonating with people around you. Again, Bill Tiller, John Velo Malkisadek talks about this, that we have a 60-yard circumference of power around us as human beings that we're not aware of, but that is there. Did you find that once you had traveled through the mentorship in 1987, now you're moving forward, are you finding that people around you are beginning to feel that strength that you have? Yes, very much so. You, you know, people only recognize in you what you recognize in yourself. So it's when it became fully apparent to me, it became fully apparent to everybody else because then there's no mental uh, conceptualizations getting in the way and and dampening that that energy force. So... Yes, it was almost immediate that 
when that alignment took place, that there was a there was a natural extension. And I would say that our presence as beings uh, probably extends that far, but the extent to which we are conscious of that, in trust of it, in alignment with it, um, subscribing to it, acting from it, the extent to which we do that determines the frequency and the force of influence within our presence. And so we, the more conscious we are, the more conscious we are of the, the higher frequency of our vibration, uh, the more we influence the whole or you use the whole, uh, I think you said 60 yards of our yes. being. Law of Attraction. I talk about this very often with people and I do receive different definitions in your message. Uh, you certainly define this well by stating that it's to align us with God. God, universe, call it what you will. I do believe that we have absolutely no idea the power of that that is all about love and compassion. But if you came across a layman looking for advice or looking for uh, compassion and he or she asked you, Law of Attraction, explain that to me, what would your brief response be? Well, I would probably say, if you want like a common and garden version, you might need to ask somebody else. <laughs> but I would probably say there's only one way I can explain this, and it's the way I understand it through my experience. And so I wouldn't change the way I describe it just because he didn't have a prior reference point. But to make it the way I describe it, but make that simple, then it would be along the lines of, you know, as you sow, so you reap. And I, I like to explain it to people when I'm doing, you know, workshops or and teaching that, for instance, anything we want to put out there in the world, we can only experience that through ourselves, you know, because there is no objective reality, it's all subjective. And so if I want to send somebody a loving thought, I have to hold that loving thought within my being. I can't send them a loving thought without it affecting my being. Similarly, if I want to send somebody uh, a hateful thought, I can't impact that hateful thought upon that person without it first impacting me. And so whatever we want to put out there in the world, whether we want to yearn for a new flashy car or attract the perfect mate or align ourselves with God, we can only use the laboratory that we've got in order to make that potion and that is our being. So that we have to understand that our being and our internal state is never divorced from anything, whether it's an object or a person or a state of mind. And that's interesting. I was going to say that Mother Earth is as conscious as human beings. I don't think that we as human beings are wholly understanding that, given the chaos that we are reaping upon her. But there is also that connection 
that possibly at the moment is disconnected. So in terms of moving what I suspect as into another epoch, we are looking towards consciousness in terms of relationships in humanity, but we're also looking at resonating with the consciousness around us in nature. Yes, very much so, yes. How do you think that people that you work with who are working in corporations would see that? We work a lot on helping people or being an, an advocate for those who have been so badly affected by events such as the Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico and, and the, the events that have taken place damaging the indigenous populations in South America. And the corporations have a lot to learn. And they are mentored and there are many people out there who are consulting, trying to consult particularly with the CEOs or the upper management. But I'm not sure that there is a mentoring that is applying this philosophy or this better understanding of how we need to treat Mother Earth as we treat ourselves, as we treat human beings. Is that something that comes up in your work that you consider when you're working with people? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, the way that I like to put everything across, whether I'm working with an individual or uh, an organization or a corporation, uh, no matter where they're coming from, is to take everything back, pair everything back to the, the essence. So we, we take everything back to, well, let's look at the at the starting point, at the fundamental essence of the way existence is designed and understand the structure of that. Let's understand the nature of that. Let's understand how it functions, how it operates, Okay, the laws around its operation. And from that starting point, we can see that that applies to everything. It applies to the, the working organization of a corporation, it also applies equally to understanding the way the earth is structured and functions. And so we can see that no matter the form, the same laws, the same structure, the same function, the same design is playing out in all these areas. And that gives us, you know, taking it back to the essence and really understanding the basics gives us a language that can be applied to every situation. And once we have that, we can start to see the interconnectedness. We can start to see the correlation because it's hard for corporations to relate directly to the earth uh, and that their practices may be harmful when they're simultaneously trying to further the bottom line, keep of their, all of their employees paid. And there are two different languages there. But if the language of the corporation speaks the same language as the language of the earth, then, you know, through this medium of understanding the essence which is manifest in both, then you start to have a relationship um, and you start to see the, the beauty and the wisdom expressed in both and there it's not an either or situation there from that point you can start to engineer win-win situations and I think there are many 
projects and schemes out there in the world now taking off, uh, many of them very new, that are, are seeking that as the outcome, a win-win situation, so that we can provide useful, meaningful, productive employment for people at the same time as you know, furthering the natural order of our earth. So you're right, it's early days. You're right that not many corporations understand that. Um, but certainly in the work I do, that, that is central to our understanding. As we've taken this journey, and I'm sure that we're not going to be able to talk to the fullest in one program, but to my mind, we have already covered conscious awareness. Intention is the next step. And this is not easy for people, intention. There's always the human frailties that have to be overcome. Some who mental me say that people in chaos or who are in fear, in addiction, in codependency, in all of those terrible human frailties that we have inherited from hundreds of thousands of years does get in the way. But intention to me is the most important thing. To be able to harness that is a quite amazing achievement. How do you see that process coming about, moving from the awareness into that capability or ability to be able to intend what you desire? It is a natural extension of understanding your being. And when your consciousness dwells in your eternal beingness, you are uh, consistently experiencing the nature of your being. So the consciousness dwelling there is releasing as experience uh, and expressing the nature of your being. So you feel the natural innate uh, expansion, light and harmony ever present. So when you start to move into intention, your intention is automatically flavored with or, or colored by, perfumed by your nature. So it's like the, the nature, because it's eternal and abiding and it's there before the intention, the intention using your being as you know the raw material from which it's fashioned automatically takes up that nature and therefore expresses it so your thoughts that you use to direct the intention therefore express uh, you, you end up with expansive thoughts light-filled thoughts harmonious thoughts and as you hold that intention steady, it can't help its duty bound to produce within your being sensations which mirror that and we call sensations experience. So it's a natural progression. And of course, the vehicle that you use to reach that point, there are many meditation, in some cases a guru, many ways that you can do it. But the ultimate sign that you've reached that is, I would define as a laser beam, a constant energy, a constant flow in the universe, and you know it. You are in that flow, 
and now you're in that flow and you're traveling with those waves it's very difficult if not impossible to be able to land yourself back into a type of reality that we have in this world would you concur with that yes yes i would uh, there's a period of adjustment and integration where you dip backwards and forwards but once the belief in illusion is finished then it it becomes impossible to earnestly try on uh, illusion and contracted states uh, and you know, sometimes when I'm teaching and I say to people, you know, just by way of experiment, okay, now hold that contracted thought, just notice the sensation that arises and notice how you feel to experience that, you know, that we're getting, we, we label our experience by the nature of the sensation. And I try to do everything I ask my students to do, but I find it very hard to hold a contracted thought and produce contracted sensation because my being is, you know, default setting is in expansion. I can try, but I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to finish off in the last three or four minutes by letting you know that the first time that I entered this studio in 2009, I had made the intention of always taking guests back to their childhood, understanding the importance of that. And in doing that, interestingly, I had read Rudolf Steiner's work. You were brought to his work. How important was that in terms of how you related to your own childhood? Well, I came across Rudolf Steiner's uh, work when I was... 23. So any sort of wisdom I took from that was retrospective, you know, applied to my childhood. So, and I would say minimally, perhaps. However, you know, I have four daughters, and it was tremendously impactful for how I parented, you know, the kind of education I choose for my children and my understanding of how my children, how all children grow and learn, it was tremendously impactful and influential and continues to be. And even though I have now you know, direct access to wisdom and experience, uh, I'm very grateful for that influence and that guidance and direction and, and certainly the breadth and depth of his wisdom in my own parenting. That must have been a great benefit in many ways, having daughters, understanding the power of the feminine. Goodness me, uh, looking back over the centuries, we have been very masculine orientated. And understanding the power of the goddess, I suspect, is something that is now beginning to arise again as we move forward. Is that something that you dedicate yourself to with your daughters? That idea, that concept? No, actually not. I I don't experience or subscribe to the, the masculine-feminine dichotomy because my experience is that it is perfectly melded in union and beyond both. Uh, and I can recognize in the world, you know, in expressed form, 
that there are certain masculine elements and feminine elements that absolutely I, I see that and I recognize masculinity and femininity uh, as having certain qualities but in my experience of the absolute uh, the, the masculine and feminine principles are so merged they become something else uh, above and beyond I so enjoyed that response uh, certain scientists will talk about dualities and singularities and to my mind the universe is a singularity it is perfect uh, some say that our reality is in a duality and it, it's off course but it seems to me that what we don't recognize in those values of awareness and intention and consciousness is that everything is perfect and that we are traveling through almost as babies in this reality and certainly the ones that will follow on a course that is uh, divine would that be a good definition for you that way to look upon it i agree with you but i would define it differently um, the, the, the trouble with the word perfect is that most people think it means happy, something that will make them happy. Mm. And happiness is firmly in the, in the spectrum of experience. Mm. Uh, so we, we're not really shooting for happiness, contentment perhaps. Or bliss perhaps. Yes. Uh, well, that's still sort of, most people want those experiences and they want uh, a life uh, that is that looks externally perfect and they've got very fixed ideas about what that is but it's different for everybody which is why there's no one rule but those kind of fixed ways of relating to what life is sort of drop away of their own accord when you experience the, the, the real life and in terms of are we off course and where are we headed I would completely agree with you that we on this planet anyway, have such a limited, limited, limited viewpoint that we are basing our conclusions about what life is upon. Uh, and therefore, we're missing, you know, 99% of the picture. And unfortunately, the 99% of the picture we're missing is all the good stuff. Uh, and the 1% that we're focusing on is the influence of the mind in a contracted state. So we've drawn these conclusions and assumptions about what life is, where we're headed, and certainly around human beings, haven't we? Haven't we all just said, you know, human beings, there are many religions which subscribe to the fact that human beings are, you know, born of sin and remain in sin and can only be absolved by a merciful God. And yet that is so far from the truth of it. You know, we are absolutely engaged in a vast complex, beautiful, wise and masterfully orchestrated experiment into the expansion of consciousness, the extent to which consciousness can hold the truth of our being. That is all and that is forever following the trajectory of our nature which is more expansion, more light and more harmony and so no matter what it appears to be on the surface the underlying movement the seismic movement underneath the ground is always in that direction always 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 it cannot be otherwise surely when I look at what I call the 80s generation these kids 
who are involved in projects around the world they are quite amazing they certainly many of them to me put us to shame these children are moving upwards forwards into a different state of human being whether that's a cellular difference at this stage who knows but i'm sure it will be one day but do you see an inspiration there something that we can hold on to and look forward to Yes, and it extends far beyond, you know, the inspiration coming from, you know, how conscious and aware many of our young people can be. I see that inspiration every morning, the sun rises, you know, I see it in the fact that, you know, the grass is green, that baby birds know how to fly, that, you know, there's the miracle of birth, you know, it is, from my experience and my perception, Every single thing I look at reminds me of just how beautiful and, and wonderful and awe-inspiring life is. And we are certainly, certainly, certainly headed in the right direction. And I guess the young people are a good reminder of that. They will inherit the earth. They will make the earth according to their understanding. And that can only be a good thing. And that is a very important way to complete the program. I'm all for inspiring the younger generation. They certainly deserve our support, Jedamali. It has been an absolute pleasure to share this time with you today. I'm sure that we'll spend more time together in future programs. I do thank you so very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for your insightful questions. I appreciated them. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.